Well, it's good to be back with you this Sunday. I'm very thankful to Elder Mark for uh, being willing to step into the pulpit on Sunday and uh, let me get uh, a little time away. My family was up in Vermont enjoying the beauties of God's creation there. I always love going up there with the family right after graduation and getting a couple days of, uh, of rest. And so it was good. And, and Mark allowed me to uh, uh, have Sunday, which was uh, an extra day. And so I'm very thankful for that. I was hoping he would just preach on 1 Corinthians 14 and, and, uh, and I'd come back and I'd be able to jump into 1 Corinthians 15. But uh, he didn't do it. You know, he went to, he went to the Psalms. He took the easy way out. Uh, no, but I'm very thankful, Mark, for you doing that. Um, well, we are continuing our way through 1 Corinthians. It's been uh, uh, with fits and starts because we've broken off to do little other series along the way, but have made our way back and over the past couple weeks have thought about the end of chapter 12 and then 13, and today we enter into chapter 14. <clears throat> and as we do, it's important for us to remember the context of what Paul is dealing with in, uh, in this letter, right? He's dealing with a very contentious church. He's dealing with a church that is struggling to work out what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christian community. So not only on an individual level, though there are those struggles, but particularly, what does it mean to be a Christian community? And their nature, and we understand why, their nature is to think like Corinthians, to think like Greeks. Corinth was very much like New York in the sense that it was, it was a, a, a melting pot of sorts. It was people coming and going. It was a huge commercial city. It was a link between the two sides of Greece. So a lot of business came in through Corinth, all sorts of nationalities, languages, uh, groups of people. Uh, our cultures are coming through there. And they think in that cosmopolitan way. They think like Greeks uh, or Romans. And so they're trying to think, they're, they're struggling with what it means to think like a Christian. You know, and this is a problem for us as well. You know, I, I, you, you are Christians who live in America, but it's very important for us to kind of get the, the, the pattern right. Are we American Christians, you know, or are we Christians who live in America? It's like, what is the defining thing? Because the, the first thing in that list, if I'm an American Christian, well, then my, my default way of thinking is American, which would make a lot of sense because I don't know if you all grew up in America, but I mean, I grew up in America. I, of course, I think like an American. What, what, how else can I think? You know, and so I'm going to tend to think that way. It's going to be my default sense of values, my, my default sense of appropriateness, my default, default tastes are going to be American. There's going to be some wiggle room in there, but I'm just going to see the world through American lenses because it's the pond I've been swimming in for 53 years. So understandable. But that's a problem. It's a problem if I'm an American Christian because then my Americanism, a lot of which is good, some of which is bad, affects my Christianity and my implementation of the scriptures. Harry Blameyers, in his book, The Christian Mind, as we've talked about, I think a couple weeks ago, said we need to think Christianly. Of course, there's no such adverb, but you get the point. We need to think Christianly. We need, we need our default, the 
default lenses through which we view the world to be Christian. And then even my American culture stuff, I'm to view through the lens of my Christian mind, my Christian worldview, through the lens of the scriptures. I'm to judge America by this, not this by America, right? And yet we see problems in our society, even our Christian society, as we start interpreting this according to American values. That's bad. That's bad. We don't want to do that. I want to judge American values by this. And that's a problem. And it's something, this is why in Romans 12, he has to say, you know, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. In the passage that we looked at in Ephesians 4 today, our, our word of exhortation, he basically said the same thing. You need to be renewed in your mind. Hey, Ephesians, you need to stop thinking Greekly. You need to stop thinking Ephesianly. And you need to start thinking Christianly. Let me tell you what that means. And so he, he writes the book of Ephesians to say, here's what it is to work this out and to live it out. And he's writing that to the Corinthians who are struggling pretty significantly. We have some wild stuff going on in this city and in, in this church, right? We've got lawsuits going back and forth. We've got guys marrying their, you know, their dad's ex. Why? I mean, it's like, uh, they've got, we've got, uh, uh, breakdowns in love and we've got poor understandings of marriage and we've got, uh, people using their gifts in ways that are tearing the church apart as opposed to bringing it together. And we've got people not wanting to, to claiming rights. And, you know, I have a right to this and a right to that. And meanwhile, breaking down the unity of the church. I mean, so we've got all kinds of problems. And, and that's why First Corinthians is such a challenging book, because he's coming at, so, he's peppering it with so many little issues on the ground there um, in Corinth. But in all of it, he is helping to get them to see the world through their Christian identity. Now, most recently, as we've started back up in 1 Corinthians, you'll get the theme of it. In chapter 12, he has told them, you are a body. Right? You are a body. So here, you need, we all need operational metaphors. We all need to, under, to understand who we are as an individual, to understand what my role is within society, to understand what we are as an institution, as a church. You need metaphors. Metaphors help. And Paul gives us a beautiful operating metaphor for us to think of ourselves in church as a body. We are the body of Christ. And that doesn't just mean a group of individuals. No, he actually drives it home and says, no, think of yourself like an actual physical body. What is true of bodies? One thing that is true about bodies is they are singular. There's one body. You're looking at it right here. Right? It's a single body. And this single body is made up of just innumerable distinct parts. But those parts all have an organic unity. I mean, so diverse from the different elements that make up my body, from bones to organs to skin to eyes, you know, jelly, I don't know, you know, to hair, to all kinds of things that make us up. And yet somehow they are all integrated in a very organic way, all working for the good of the whole, even in their unique distinctions. Paul says, yeah. There's your metaphor. Think about yourselves that way. 
this little group here and this little group here is part of the greater group. So we at Affirmation are the body of Christ. So as, as a little subgroup here, we should be thinking about ourselves as a body, but then we should also view our little subgroup, our little church as part of the greater body that cuts across denominations, that cuts across nationalities, that cuts across the ages. Where the, the church is one body, singular, yet multifaceted, right? Gifted in so many different ways. My hands have gifts and tasks to do that my liver does not. And it would be stupid if my liver tried to be my hands or if my hands tried to do what my liver does. You're not equipped to do what the liver does. Just be the hands and do what hands do. And if you do that, you will serve the liver and you will serve the body as a whole and liver just do your thing. I don't need the liver to smell. I don't need the liver to see. I need the liver to filter. At least I think that's what it does. Whatever it does, I just need it to do it. And I don't even need to know what it does. Just do it. <laughs> because I need the parts of the body to do their thing. And in so doing, love the entire body. When the liver filters, whatever it filters, it is in some sense loving the entire body. And when the eyes see clearly, they are loving. They're doing a loving thing for the entire body. And so it is, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, for you. Now, this is a little bit challenging because in some sense, you all kind of get the liver obviously does liver stuff. The eyes obviously see. We all get that. Okay, but it gets trickier when it's you. What do you do? <laughs> you know, that we're like, well, wait a second, I... What do you mean? What do I, yeah, what, what's my role within the body? Well, that's, that should be important to us to figure out, Lord, what gifts have you given me and how can I use those for the edification of the body? Because that's, if you go back, the reason I chose Ephesians 4 as our word of exhortation today is because Paul makes that point specifically to the Ephesians. Hey, there's one this, one that. It's actually sevenfold unity. It's unity perfect unit. That's what the church is supposed to be. One body, one Lord, one spirit, one baptism. You Okay, all the oneness. But he has given to the church many gifts, and then he actually tells us why those gifts are given. These gifts were given for the building up of the body of Christ. You have been given gifts, and your gifts are not to be, you know, kind of taken off to your own, right? Uh, um, but rather they are to be used for the sake of the body, right? The hand doesn't have gifts for the sake of the hand. The hand has gifts for the sake of the body. The liver does what it does not for the sake of the liver, but for the sake of the body. And you have been given gifts, not for yourself, but rather to be used for the body itself. So Paul made that point in depth in chapter 12. And he ended chapter 12 by challenging us about the greater gifts. And then he rolls into 13, which again, you got to remember when Paul wrote, he didn't write chapter 12, right? He just, this is, a, this is a single letter. And he rolls right from that analogy, that metaphor of the body, right into a chapter on love. The liver is to love the body. The hands and the eyes are to love the entire body. And so Paul tells us to pursue love. Now, all that context is very important as we come to chapter 14, because in chapter 14, he hones in now and focuses in on what apparently was a problem in Corinth. 
And it's always a little, it's tricky when you read a book like 1 Corinthians because you are getting truth that is applicable to the entire church throughout all the ages, yes, and yet you are also dealing with a, a distinct problem on the ground. Paul is dealing with very particular problems in Corinth, and he's responding to those problems. And that's what we have here. I don't think, for example, that Paul is giving us a broad universal theology on the gifts here, though he though what he says has implications for our theology of the gifts. He is dealing with these gifts that are causing problems, particularly in Corinth. And for them, apparently, it is the problem of the gift of tongues that is causing dissension within the body. It is causing chaos within the body. That's why he ends the chapter, which we'll have to do next week, but he ends in verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. Whatever is happening, and we don't know what's happening. This is one of the problems with reading uh, 1 Corinthians, is we don't know all the exact details. We have to kind of sift it out and try to get a, a sense of it. But whatever is happening, there's division. The gifts that God has given his church for the sake of unity, because all of those gifts are gifts of the one spirit, are causing division and fraction within the church. And Paul says that that just can't be. If, if that's the case, then it is not of the Spirit. How can it be? The Spirit fighting with the Spirit. That's just, that's not the Spirit of God. So we have something else going on here. So Paul is challenging them. Whatever is happening, there's chaos, there's disorder, and there's division. And apparently it is centering around this gift of tongues. Now, what are we dealing with when we're dealing with tongues in 1 Corinthians 14? This is why I was hoping Mark would have preached, <laughs> preached on it. Because it's difficult to say. It's very difficult to say. Now, what the situation is here with tongues. We hear tongues and we immediately think of our contemporary um, manifestations of them, particularly within Pentecostal charismatic churches. Uh, there's a manifestation of tongues, and perhaps that's what it was. I don't know. And I, I will not be dogmatic today in speaking about what I think is going on there. But it's interesting because I did pick up Calvin uh, actually just this morning to see. I just wanted to see what he, just when he read tongues, I just wanted to hear what he said about it. And he goes into no detail on the theology of tongues. But without flinching, for Calvin, this is a clear statement about the use of other languages. Now, I tell you that not because I want to make an argument for that. I don't. To be honest, I'm not sure that's what's going on here. I don't think I would lean to the fact that tongues here means other languages, though it may very well mean that. That's, a, that's one option, is that what the gift of tongues is, some have said, Calvin himself believed it, that the gift of tongues is the gift to speak languages you do not know. Or the gift to learn languages. In fact, Calvin, when he starts speaking about it, goes on to the fact that this is very popular in our day. This is a problem that we're struggling with in the church. And so I'm, I'm thinking, oh, he's talking about tongues as we kind of see it manifested within many of our, our churches, contemporary churches. But no, he's saying it's a problem today because remember, he's living at the back end of the Renaissance. And in the Renaissance, everybody's trying to learn the ancient languages. And for Calvin, yeah, that's a problem. It's not a problem to learn those languages because even here in the text, Paul says, good that people have the gift of tongues. I'm not saying that's bad. Whatever the gift of tongues is, Paul says, it's good. I'm not, I don't want to discourage that. Calvin reads that as the gift to learn languages. 
Is that what is going on here in 1 Corinthians? There are things that, that I think argue against that within this text. But clearly, if we go back into Acts 2, where it says they spoke in tongues, we know that it was, in fact, other languages, right? The apostles are speaking, and they're speaking in languages that apparently they did not know. They were Galileans. Remember, all the people are like, what are, these, are these guys drunk? That is to the listener who didn't know the language and who knew that the apostles didn't know that language because, hey, you grew up in Pine Bush. I know you don't know Kikuyu. Right? I know, you know, I say Kikuyu. I always think of Kikuyu because uh, Joseph, sort of my adopted brother, you know, is Kenyan and, and, uh, and he, he, his tribal language is Kikuyu. And now, now when I was over in Kenya, and I was, I was, I was uh, preaching in a church, and, and so I had the, the, the pastor uh, 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 translating for me. He was translating into Kikuyu. And man, I'm going to tell you right now, it sounded like he was speaking in tongues to me. Uh, it, it really did. It was like I, I grew up, you know, at, uh, in, when my parents started the ministry, uh, before it was a school, we were down at Bethel Gospel Assembly down in Harlem. And, uh, and I remember as a kid hearing tongues spoken and Man, when I was in Kenya, it sounded a lot like Kikuyu. Um, now, now you say, hey, if some, some guy from Pine Bush, uh, which is where I live, um, starts speaking Kikuyu, other Pine Bushians, you know, uh, are going to say, that guy's drunk. <laughs> right now, because they don't know Kikuyu, and they know I don't know Kikuyu, and yet somehow this language is coming out, which has some rhythm to it, but no one understands what's going on. Except for that other guy over there who speaks Kikuyu, and he's like, whoa. And the gospel is being spoken to him in his language. And he's hearing it from God, right? Through this person who himself does not know the language. That is what is happening in Acts 2. When it comes now, is that the gift? Is that the gift of tongues? The ability to speak languages that God just gives the gift of language as the gospel is going out on the mission field, as it's going out, that some people are just gifted to all of a sudden they're given the ability to speak the gospel in the language of the hearers? Perhaps it is. Is it the ability just to learn languages? Some people just can, it's unbelievable if you've ever been around these people. I get unbelievably jealous, you know, that, wow, they could just pick up languages. I remember hearing once, like, Kobe Bryant, you know, knew, like, five languages. You know, he could speak Italian, he could speak Chinese, he could speak this, he could speak that, he could speak Spanish, he could speak French. Wow, is that what it is? Some people say that's what it is. Is it an ecstatic language? Is it a heavenly language? Is it speaking in a language that no human knows? It's not, it just isn't a human language. It's a spiritual heavenly language that really requires interpretation, as Paul seems to say here. Hey, you better have an interpreter. He doesn't say you need a translator, right? He says you need an interpreter. There's, there's a revelatory message that is being declared in this heavenly language, and it is ecstatic, and no one can understand it without an interpreter. Is that what's going on here? I don't know. <laughs> and so I will not be dogmatic about it. But at least we can get some lay of the land and try to understand whether, in fact, it is people who have the gift of other languages and are speaking in those languages in worship, and yet no one's understanding them. That doesn't seem very likely. But whether it's that, or whether it is people who have the gift that is more... that we see more within our Pentecostal churches today where they are speaking in tongues that is 
a heavenly ecstatic language. If that's going on in the church, whatever it is, the people are not understanding. And Paul makes that argument here. When you speak prophecy, he says, when, you're, when you stand and when you speak, when you prophesy to one another, that is declare the word of God to one another, that's edifying because I'm speaking your language and I'm taking the word of God and I'm declaring it to you. When you speak in tongues, he says, unless there is an interpreter, what good is it? To the body, to the body. Unless there's somebody to come interpret that, it's just not understood. It's bypassing the mind. Prophecy, he says in this text, is speaking to one another. Tongues is speaking to God, which then I think makes at least leans to the argument that it's not a known language, because in this case, uh, it, it wouldn't just be speaking with God, it'd be speaking to anyone who knows that language, but like in Acts. So it seems that something different is going on here in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14. Whatever it is, it is being done and brought into the congregational body in such a way that it is not edifying the body. And Paul is arguing, hey, good thing, not discounting it, not saying it's a bad thing, just saying there's something better that we should have within the congregation. And that is the word of God being declared so that all can understand it. Now, we get this right in the very beginning in the first verse, because here Paul, I think, gets it. This is not a treatise on tongues and prophecy per se, though, of course, it is. That's the particular thing that he's dealing with here. Just like when uh, in earlier passages he's dealing with food sacrificed to idols. That's the particular thing he's talking about. But the bigger issue is how we love one another when we have differences of conscience. Right, you, you, you think you should eat meat sacrificed to idols. This person thinks they should not. Okay, we can argue over food sacrificed to idols. The bigger thing is how do we love each other? How do we love each other? So here, what is he, how does he begin this text in verse, um, verse one of chapter 14? Pursue love. Desire the spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And then he, then he goes on to why? Because again, Tongues do not edify, but prophecy does. But notice the point he's making. The point he's making is pursue love. Yes, desire gifts. It's good to desire those gifts, but in desiring the gifts, the aim is love. That is what you are to pursue. Gifts are a means to an end. The gifts are not the end. The gifts are a tool, if you will, by which we can love one another. That is the greatest gift. Look, he even says back in chapter 13, and you know this back up in, uh, in verse 8 of chapter 13, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, the gifts, they will fail. Right? Prophecies will cease. There is a day in which we will not need each other to declare the word of the Lord. Right? Preachers will be out of a job. Prophets are out of a job. We don't need preachers. Everyone, he says, will know the word of God. It'll just be, it'll be so rich within their hearts. We won't need to declare it to one another. So prophecies, they're going to fail. They're short term. So desire to do it, desire to be the means of God's service to the church 
in this interim, but but don't pursue that as if it's the ultimate thing because it's a temporary thing. It's a temporary tool. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. So even these two gifts that he holds up side by side in chapter 14, yes, desire them. Desire all the gifts of the Spirit. Desire to be used by the Spirit, whether it be in prayer or in prophecy. But in all of these things, let your aim, let your desire, let your pursuit be love. Now back in, in, uh, in Ephesians 4, if you can remember uh, the, the reading there, Paul actually talks about the gifts again there, and he does it again after this whole talk about unity, and then this one body, he has given gifts. But if you remember the way he talks about the gifts in Ephesians 4, here, here's what he says in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given. He views the gifts as grace. They are undeserved gifts to you. God gives undeserved gifts to you so that you might be co-workers with him for the sake of his church. God does not need you. God does not need me. Let's, let's go to me. God does not need me to preach. God can declare to you himself. He doesn't need, it's not like God is, needs preachers and evangelists and teachers to explain the complexities of his being and of his work of salvation. He allows me he calls me to participate with him in doing this. I have the tremendous privilege to be a means by which God teaches you. But he does not need me. He could do it without me. He could approach anybody the way he approached the Apostle Paul, knock him off his horse, blind him, and save him. He doesn't need evangelists and missionaries and preachers and teachers. He can do it himself. But he calls me. And he doesn't need you and whatever gifts you bring to the table. But he calls you and he equips you. It's an act of grace that you and I get to participate with him in the building of his kingdom. But to each one of us, Paul says in Ephesians 4, but to each one of us, grace was giving, given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Christ doles this out as he sees fit. Bill, you're going to be a preacher. And he equips me. So whatever abilities I have to do it, it is not of me, it is of God. But it's interesting, he says this, and he goes, it's, Paul jumps in Ephesians 4 to this. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And then Paul launches into this parenthetical comment, and the, the New King James actually has it in parentheses. Now this quote, he ascended, because that's when he gave the gifts. He gave the gifts when he ascended on high, right? He, he, he dies, he's buried, he's raised, he ascends to the right hand of the Father, then pours the Spirit out in Pentecost upon his church. But Paul feels the need to make this argument. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Well, what's that? Oh, Paul, what, what are you doing? Why, 
Why do we have to get this grammatical lesson about if, if he says he ascended, it only implies that he must have first descended. Why is Paul going into that in this parenthetical comment? And here's why, I think. Because Paul is talking about gifts. Think about that. You think gifts are great. The one who bestows the gifts is even greater than that. But when did he bestow the gifts? When he ascended. Right? He's at a place of unbelievable prominence. But Paul says, ah, but hold on, not so fast. How did he ascend? By first descending. What gave him the right to bestow the gifts, but that he first emptied himself? Now I'm thinking Philippians 2. Taking the form of a bondservant and becoming obedient unto death, even the humiliating death of a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him, giving him the name above every name. It was the descent in love, the self-emptying of his honor and his glory, not of his attributes as we talked about before, but certainly of his honor and his privilege that he was therefore then exalted and placed in a position of great honor, crowned with many crowns, bestowed with the gift and the power of the Spirit by which he poured it out upon his church. And Paul is saying, there's the model for you, church. In fact, in the Philippians 2 passage, right, that Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, it begins, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God as something to be hoarded for himself, but rather emptied himself. And if the one who gives the gifts gets the privilege to give them by first descending, that he might then ascend. Then how much more we who receive the gifts, how dare you Corinthians, allow your gifts to be means of division? How dare you Corinthians take pride in your gifts if they are in fact gifts of grace bestowed upon you? How much more than for us who receive the gifts must we not empty ourselves? Must we not take them and use them then for the edification of the body? That's the very thing Paul turns to in Ephesians 4 is saying, why did he give you these gifts? That it might, every joint might be supplied with what it needs for the building up of the edification of the body of Christ. The liver must give itself away for the sake. It is gifted. The liver is gifted to filter out toxins from the body. It is supremely gifted to that. But how stupid if the liver took pride in its, in its filtration gifts and abilities. Well, that's what God made you to do. And do it. And when you do it, you will bring glory to God and you will bring health to the body. Whatever I'm gifted to do, I'm called to be a preacher. Inasmuch as I'm gifted to do it, stupid, number one, to take pride in it. And number two, stupid then to use it in any way of self-aggrandizement. That's not why, if, if I use it to that end, then I'll have to answer for it. Like the man who gave talents out to some, what did you do with them? Right, the talents were given to the different people to be invested for the sake of the master. Not to be hoarded for oneself, not to take pride. How can I take pride in these things? And the same is true for you. And the Corinthians 
in whatever they're doing, whether or not it's, as Calvin said, you know, some kind of ability to learn. And the reason, by the way, I went back to Calvin on that is, you know, the, the, the uh, charismatic movement uh, is a relatively, though there have been pockets of it from the early church all the way through to the contemporary era, in the 2,000-year span of the Christian church, the charismatic movement is a relatively uh, new movement. And when we think tongues, our minds immediately go to what we've heard if we've ever been in a, in a charismatic church. And so I want to go back to the 16th century. And you see, when Calvin reads it, what comes first to his mind? And it's funny, what comes to his mind is what his local congregations were having to deal with and people taking pride in languages. And I don't think, I mean, you know, do I dare say I, I, I don't agree with Calvin, but, but, uh, but I, I don't think that's what's going on in the text. But it's just interesting, Calvin reads it, and he, it's just not the, the ecstatic uh, prayers that we're used to hearing are just not even in Calvin's mind. It's not on his radar. It just wasn't within the radar of the church at that time. And so I, the reason I did that is because I want to be careful that when I read a text, that I'm not just reading it in light of my contemporary moment, that, oh, this is what it has to mean because this is how, how I see it being manifested. It may very well be that, but it may not, and I have, to, I have to just wrestle with that. But again, whatever's happening here, what we can take away from it is that our aim of all of our gifts is to be for the edification of the body. And Paul looks at the gift of prophecy as, if you will, a better congregational gift than the gift of tongues. Prophecy for Paul is the gift of declaring, this little fly is going to distract and bother me. The gift of prophecy for Paul is the gift of declaration. And you heard it in Ezekiel. So let me just, I'll leave you with this and challenge you with this. And may it be a gift then that we all pray for and that we all seek. And by prophecy here, I'm speaking prophecy with a small p because I do not believe that God is giving, if you will, new canonical revelations that we should consider adding to the, to the work of God in the scriptures. I believe the scriptures are closed and the revelation, the new redemptive revelation of God is sealed in the scriptures. But inasmuch as our prophetic work is analogous to the capital work, capital P work of the prophets, we are called to be prophets. Jesus Christ was a prophet, priest, and king. And we are, we as Christians have a prophetic role and we have a priestly role and we have a kingly role within the kingdom of God. And so inasmuch as we are prophetic in our work as a church, and we should all endeavor to do it, think about what it means. And you got a little bit of that in the Ezekiel 2 passage today. It's confrontational. Right? Ezekiel, go and speak. Ezekiel's going to have to speak truth to power. And it's going to cost him. Because what Ezekiel is going to have to do is walk into a world of rebellion and speak truth. But people don't want truth. Right? We all, those who dwell in darkness hate the light. John says this in John 1. We prefer to keep our blinders on. We prefer to live in our own little realities. We prefer not to hear that this car we're in is going right off a cliff. We don't want to hear that. And if you tell me that, it unsettles me, it makes me uncomfortable, and I want to shut you up. And Ezekiel, they're going to do that to you. But don't you compromise. Don't you become rebellious. I mean, tough. I remember preaching through Ezekiel in the church years ago. And beginning by saying, imagine being Ezekiel where you're told, 
Ezekiel, you're going to have this very hard ministry where you are going to have to go bring my word to a people dwelling in darkness and they will not listen to you. How defeating and deflating is that? But Ezekiel was to go do it nonetheless. And we as a church, Paul says, should long for that privilege to proclaim and to declare the word of God, to apply the word of God to our contemporary neighbors, to those in power, to speak truth, to bring light into the midst of the darkness, to bring the gospel to bear upon a fallen age. And you know it as well as I do, even in the very work of evangelism. And why do we get uncomfortable to share the gospel with somebody? Because we know it's going to offend. It's going to touch a nerve in a person's heart that they, you know, if, if I was telling them where there's buried treasure, they wouldn't be upset at all. And yet I'm doing something even better than that. I'm telling them where there is buried eternal treasure, and yet they get confrontational when I tell them. Why? Because again, there's dwelling in darkness, and when light comes to darkness, the darkness rejects the light. But this is the call that we have our prophetic role within the church. And that, Paul said, whatever the gift of tongues is, that gift, that prophetic gift, is more edifying for the body and better even to be pursued. And Paul challenges us to pray for it. May we be faithful as a church in our prophetic ministry. May we pray for it and endeavor to be faithful in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us to pursue love. And we pray that you would bless us as a congregation. Make us those who, while we desire the gifts, we desire them for the purpose of love. Guard us from pride. Guard us from hoarding the gifts for our own glory. But instead, Father, equip us Make us those who, like the King of Kings, first descend in humility, pouring ourselves out, emptying ourselves in love for our neighbor and for our brother and sister, that by that they may be loved and you may be glorified. Teach us our gifts, whatever they might be. But Father, help us to use them all for the edifying of the church and for the glorifying of your name. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.